The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. It's my pleasure to... uh, Welcome you back to the Commonwealth Club. I hope you've seen quite a few of our over 500 virtual programs since the pandemic started, um, either live streamed directly or on our YouTube and Facebook channels. Um, Today, we have a very interesting uh, program uh, with Jeremy Lent. Uh, He's the author of The Web of Meaning. And uh, Jeremy's coming back to the Commonwealth Club. He spoke here in person uh, a couple of years ago um, for his last book, The Patterning Instinct. And... um, we're going to start uh, his, his book, The Web of Meaning, is basically uh, an analysis of where we are as a race culturally and civilizationally and uh, which ideas from the past we probably could benefit from. Um, and one of the ways that he posed it in the book was very interesting. He said, you know, from the Star Trek show, uh, there was uh, this United Federation of Planets, and they had a particular set of rules for you to be able to join the United Federation of Planets. And uh, Jeremy, uh, you know, very rightly pointed out in his book that, that we would not qualify ourselves uh, as a human race uh, to join the United Federation of Planets. And so we're going to try to talk about uh, what it is that will take us from where we are here in the early 21st century to being able to qualify as a as a real civilization that other civilizations might be able to count on. So that's that's what we're going. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your your completely eclectic background in 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 this knowledge? Uh, you you one thing the web of meaning does, for example, is it's it's almost a very great historical record of these ideas and how this idea of how we should uh, think ahead, be idealistic about community and civilization got started and, mm-hmm. and its different versions. So why don't you give us a little background on, on why you did that or how you did that? Because that's a yeah. lot of work. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, really, it's, uh, the, the book's entitled The Web of Meaning. And really, it's kind of the result of my own search for meaning that I undertook over a, a fair number of years. I, I went through a, a, a sort of a midlife crisis in my life where the things I'd done at the beginning of my life kind of crashed uh, around me. And I spent a number of years really asking myself, what is truly meaningful in my life that could go f- uh, for me to really feel that I was fulfilling my, my real purpose? But I didn't want to take somebody else's word for it. So I started to try to piece together all the different assumptions that we make about the fundamental questions in life, whether it's body and soul, or is there a God, or um, how, uh, how humans are different from the rest of nature, all these fundamental things. And actually, after years of working on this, uh, the, I really put together sort of notes for two books. That first book that you mentioned, The Patterning Instinct, looks historically 
at the different ways in which cultures have made sense of the universe, all the way from hunter-gatherer times to the present. And, and so it's more like a history book. But what this new book does is it actually lays out a framework for meaning, one that was uh, what I came across from my own personal journey, but one that, that fundamentally integrates different traditions, integrates the past and the present, integrates science and wisdom traditions, and integrates different kinds of wisdom traditions from around the world so that we can actually potentially have a platform for making meaning for humanity's future that actually allows us to really kind of move forward in a sustainable way, in actually moving towards human flourishing rather than what our current civilization is doing. Yeah, and in your idea about how we can flourish as an individual, one of the ideas you use in, in, in a couple of places is that an individual can't flourish unless the society is flourishing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah sure, absolutely. The, um, there's this notion of what I actually call in the book fractal flourishing. And I bet a number of people are familiar with um, what fractals refer to. But I'll, j just to get a better sense of that, they basically are these patterns in nature that system scientists have discovered that repeat themselves at different scale. Um, throughout actually ecosystems. So you, you, we sort of know about fractals from things like the patterning in leaves or in lightning, or even things like the patterning of neurons in the brain or um, uh, the bronchia in our lungs. But what's so fascinating, we learned from biology, from modern systems biology, is that the very principles of life repeat themselves in these kind of fractal ways, all the way from a cell to an ecosystem. And then when we begin to see actually humans as part of this, there's this um, realization that actually we kind of right now in our modern worldview think that flourishing is about, you know, look out for myself and the hell with, with, with the rest of the world, or look out for our nation and forget the, um, every other country out there. Or it's always about like a zero sum game. When you say that in your book, it always you know, that reminds me of those stories from New York City that you, were, you said. So you kind of give away your experience in New York City that you feel that strongly about how individualistic things are. But go, go ahead, because there are places where people aren't that strict about their individuality. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. But, you know, it's a, um, essentially it's a... Uh, what's become the uh, dominant neoliberal way of thinking about things is that uh, we're sort of told basically that humans are selfish and actually that's okay because if we all act uh, in our selfish ways, that's, that's called the invisible hand. That's how capitalism works. And that's in the best interest of everybody. And oh, by the way, even our genes are selfish. And so, you know, we're just in line with nature by doing that. But this is what a lot of my book um, uncovers is that some of these things that we take for granted that we think are science and are actually sort of just um, default ideas of what science tells us are actually wrong, scientifically wrong. Um, and so this is not just my interpretation. This is dozens and dozens of scientists in evolutionary biology, in systems thinking, cognitive science, showing us that actually humans are not, in fact, uh, fundamentally selfish. Um, in fact, he, this whole notion of selfish gene has been completely overturned in biology. And as a result, we can begin to recognize that our own flourishing 
actually can be most optimized when our, those around us are also in health and flourishing, when our community and our society is flourishing, when all of humanity is doing better, and when life on earth is also uh, actually flourishing and healthy. And that might seem like a long way away from what our reality is today. And that's what the book uncovers, that what we, the path we're on right now that we're told is for our um, benefit, for our material welfare, is actually a path that is currently destroying much of life on Earth and actually destroying our own civilization because of the incompatibilities that are intrinsic to it. So that's a lot of the exploration in the book. Right. Absolutely. And we talk about different ideas. One of the ideas, the tensions in in the history of our, our planet in terms of the ideas that we used to try to understand life with is the tension between are we a community or are we individual minds? And you're talking about capitalism and, and, and modern times and even even uh, mechanistic scientific ideas as being very individualistic and very uh, non-generous, non-cooperative. Uh, but uh, I think one of the things that your book does very well is it shows that a lot of these popularized notions about science are not actually the accurate science. Not even at the time it started, some of them, like the left brain, right brain split. You know, some of these ideas get into the popular culture and the scientists that are working on them, they don't believe those ideas at all. And that's not their mm-hmm. approach. So there's some of that. There's also some of scientists actually believing some of that determinism and everything. But, uh, mm-hmm. for example, you, you quote John Calvin as somebody who, who uh, has this Christ- Christian point of view on, on, on how stark everything is. John Calvin is definitely on one extreme of Christianity. So, you know, we, we can pick and choose who, who, who we want to. Um, but let's talk about that cooperative versus you know, community versus this. Now, obviously, when you say community, some people say communism. Um, you know, when you say <laughs> individual, people say freedom and capitalism. And there's, there's, there is no society like that. I actually... Uh, um, uh, Suggested to Gorbachev, um, I didn't answer, of course, um, when, when, when the wall came down, when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, that he should go to the United Nations and say, well, we Russians were extremists. Uh, you know, we took this as far as we could this way. But you guys had this crazy form of capitalism at the beginning of the 20th century. And, and what our extremism did was it made you come up with the social safety net which makes uh, capitalism more sustainable. But there's, there's ways to make it even more sustainable than that, I'm sure, that you're talking about. But um, these ideas have been argued about, and people have been obviously pushing different versions of it for a long time. So why don't you give your idea about, about this tension between community and individualism? Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I guess maybe there's a couple of ways to come at this, but I think an important way is to actually start off with who we are as human beings. And because there is a lot of work that's now been done in evolutionary biology to show that actually uh, when humans, when our our human ancestors, pre-human hominids, first diverged from other primates, like uh, between six to eight million years ago, and we found ourselves in the the savannah and it was a dangerous changing environment. And what, what those early ancestors learned is that by working together more cooperatively, they could be more successful. And over millions of years, and those who actually uh, had uh, were, had the genes that helped them to actually focus on cooperation with others around them, uh, their groups turned out to be the ones that actually succeeded there on the savannah. 
So what we find and what evolutionary biologists point to is that over those times, humans evolve what they call moral emotions. So we actually feel things like compassion or a sense of group identity, or we, we intuitively like people who are generous and who care for the group. And we intuitively don't like people who are like too big for their britches. And there's even um, this notion of uh, sort of um, altruistic punishment, it's called, where people, we are naturally inclined to even risk and our thing, sacrifice our own selves to work against somebody who we think is taking advantage of the group as a whole. We have deeply moral impulses. So when people say that actually we are innately selfish and we have to overcome that, that's not actually what evolutionary biologists tell us. We as humans, and this is something we can feel really good about, evolved a sense of group identity. And that's something that indigenous cultures actually all around the world built on. So if you look back um, as sort of pre-agrarian civilization, everywhere around the world, people had this sense of values around shared group identity, the sense of reciprocity, sense of being in relationship, not just with other humans, but in relationship with all of life. And it's only really in the last 10,000 years with the rise of agriculture that sort of more of the selfish um, elements within, within human beings and the sort of drive for greed and power has become elevated and reinforced through the divisions in hierarchy and inequalities. And that's actually um, one of the key places to begin to realize that we can actually reconnect with our true human nature by shifting more towards cooperation. There's a lot of ideas in there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick out a couple of them. Um, one is uh, that a lot of people who talk about uh, the value of indigenous wisdom kind of think of agriculture as the original sin, you know, that it, uh, it, it, it divides us from, from our past. Um, but in this community uh, life that the tribes love, that the nomadic tribes love, they're very harsh to people outside the group. Um, and so, uh, you know, other, other um, tribes uh, are, are engaged in war with each other all the time. Uh, same thing true about our, our simian relatives. Um, and so when we went from tribes to bigger and bigger organizations, some of that insider-outsider thing uh, obviously has continued. But the other thing that you, you talk about in your book is the development of these emotions. Uh, we know, if we talk about nature, that ants and bees and, and lots of other uh, insects are very, very communitarian-oriented um, animals. And you talk a little bit about that we ignore the fact that, that animals uh, have feelings and stuff like that. So one would assume that they might be, for evolutionary reasons, for the same biological reasons, have developed some of the same emotions we have developed if they've, if they've become that communitarian. Now, the question is, when people look at, when human beings look at ants, they say they've given up too much freedom, mm -hmm. right? And so, so now we're trying to get inside somewhere not as bad as ants, not as, not as communitarian <laughs> as ants, and not as individualistic as the lone wolf and the lone tiger, right? Somewhere, somewhere in between. So, yeah. so you can t tell, tell us more about yeah. where, you, where you find that, that sweet spot for us. Yeah, so I, and, and most definitely there is this spectrum. Um, and we see the spectrum in all, in all of nature um, and in different human societies too. But I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is kind of rise above these kind of classic um, debates or arguments, what they um, sort of divulge, 
what they turn into is cooperation versus competition as if like the we have to sort of pull and tug and find some place in between and all that stuff and i focus on this notion of what i call integration um which is really um something which in incorporates both the competition and the cooperation something bigger actually i call it um, harmony there's this con- like oftentimes when we think of the word harmony we think oh that sounds like everyone just kind of all being in tune together and all being nice to each other etc actually harmony is a di- very different sort of concept like imagine the the basis of harmony is think of different notes uh, say that you hit on the piano and when these notes are different they're not competing with each other they're not cooperating they're different but when they come together you get a richer sound which actually is greater than any of those notes individually could be similarly ecosystems are like that there's all kinds of cooperation competition oftentimes the relationship between different organisms you can't even figure out if it really is it's some is partly competitive partly cooperative those are really kind of labels that we humans just put on these things that oftentimes go beyond that and the same is true for our humanity uh, i'm certainly not arguing for us all to become undifferentiated or to sort of say oh we're all just one um no actually it's wonderful that we are different from each other and we can celebrate our differences both as individuals and and as groups as ethnic groups as cultural groups as nations and at the same time we can recognize that there's a part of us that is deeply connected and it's when we can actually um, really celebrate that individuality and move with that and I do that as part of something bigger that leads to this notion of a uh, harmony or ultimately the integration of a of a society in a way that can be really rich and healthy and that's actually how nature works um if you look mm-hmm. at our different cells in our body they're very different from each other and you wouldn't want your sort of eye cell to be in your heart it wouldn't it wouldn't do do so well there um but they all share the same dna they all share, share the same way of relating to each other by doing their own thing as part of a greater whole i thought that was a very interesting idea in your book uh, where you talked about uh, even so, a, a bigger concept from the east about oneness and 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 uh, the unity of all of life um but you said that there's a there's a, a certain one tradition where it's all oneness and everyone merges with it and all individuality is lost but you were talking about a different way uh, of looking at that same idea where diversity thrives in the middle of of the cooperative um co- cooperation uh which which is a very different idea about that uh concept and I think this is too short a, a a conversation to go too deep into that, but I did want to talk a little bit about some of your ideas um, because they they impinge on this uni- individuality versus community. Um, you talked about bodhisattvas, for example. Now I find that very interesting because uh, Buddha uh, himself, well, what he had to say was was a little bit harsher against human life. It was like, uh, you know, you really have to get out of this thing because it's it's really the source of all suffering. It wasn't quite that extreme, but it sounds like that to most people. But when they came up with the idea, well, some monk 300, 400 years later came up with this idea of bodhisattvas, Buddhism became an extremely popular uh, religion. And and to me, the, the pattern, you like patterns, the pattern is simple. And that is, uh, the bodhisattvas are supposed to be beings who are on the verge of nirvana, which is Buddha's goal of life, that everything. And instead of indulging in the goal of life, they turn around and they help everybody else get there. Okay, so that, that leads to two problems. One, first, it leads to a very 
positive emotional experience, which is the, 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 the sufferer, the individual human sufferer that the bodhisattva is going to help, can say, I am more important than the meaning of life. I am more important to the bodhisattva than getting to the goal of life, which, of course, is emotionally satisfying, um, whether they perceive it clearly or not. Um, and the second thing is that the bodhisattva, if, if they say, I have, to, I have to wait until I get everybody to go over the line, then you know nobody will ever go over the line because you can never yeah. get everybody to go over the line at the same time. So, so it's, a, it's an interesting concept, and I wanted you to pull that in because you used it very well, um, and, and I just mm. find that an interesting historical background uh, yeah, on your ideas. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, the, this whole bodhisattva ideal is interesting because, you know, you can come across it, um, and the logical or natural reaction is to say, well, this is an ideal. This is so far from how we are as human beings. That what does it even mean anyway? And it sounds yeah. great, you know, for somebody to say, oh, I'm just going to um, uh, sort of shift everything I do for the benefit of all beings. And of course, that's, um, that's never, we're never going to see a situation where all beings are um, happy and, and enjoy well-being. Um, but so, you know, another way you can think about it is more like an intention rather than an ideal, just as a like, resetting of your intention. So it's almost like you sort of turn towards that. And then you start to say, well, what would it be like if I actually um, just kind of shifted my emphasis in my values and what I did with my life towards that ideal? Not that we'll ever get there, but towards that. And when you do that, you can begin to approach it in a different way and sort of and go beyond this sense of like, I just got to look out for myself. And in fact, what people discover um, in um, compassion-based meditation, and many people who follow that practice, is that when you act out of compassion, it's a really, it's a win-win. This is not a zero-sum game. It's not like you're sacrificing um, for somebody else and you have to sort of uh, make these trade-offs. But actually, um, you feel good about yourself and about what you're doing in your life when you are putting time and energy into um, supporting others. That's something that social scientists have shown and in studies across the world, like when people actually uh, donate um, extra money they have to um, other groups, their overall satisfaction is higher than when they use that to buy their next sort of uh, pair of Nike shoes or whatever. And it also is consistent with what we know, what I mentioned from evolutionary biology. It's consistent with the fact that we are fulfilling some of those key human drives that we have deep within us. Which leads me to a, couple, a series of questions I had for you. So um, you, you cover this whole uh, issue in your book very nicely. Um, and my question for you is, uh, if a person is generous... Is it an enjoyable experience? And you just said yes. So if a person is, is altruistic in their behavior, is it, a, is it an enjoyable experience? Okay. And, and you just said yes. So the question is, why isn't uh, generosity, altruism, and, and other acts like that considered selfish? Because they're for our own enjoyment. They're for our own happiness. And instead, they're called selfish. And, and to me, selfishness is just stupid, a form of, of, of yeah. uh, you know, your self-interest, of your pursuit, because you're doing right. a kind of a lower level uh, value to yeah. yourself. And so I don't, I don't find the, the, the selfish, unselfish uh, dichotomy at all. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a matter yeah. of perception as to what's in your self-interest. 
I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that's another, there are so many false dichotomies that our modern worldview gives us that we feel we have to choose between. And then uh, we get sort of caught up in that and then sort of lose the importance or the value of anything we're looking at. But uh, one of the ways in which we can make better sense of that is, you know, we were talking before about fractals and fractal mm -hmm. flourishing, but it, we can actually um, look, uh, and again, this comes from cognitive science and systems understanding of our cognition and our consciousness. We can look at our consciousness itself as fractal. So there's like there's different fractal layers of our consciousness. And once we begin to realize that, we can actually um, recognize that we can hold things that seem to be incompatible all at the same time. The, the, it's not like all of us is selfish or all of us is generous, but we can actually have a part of us that acts in, in a generous way. And maybe at a deeper level, that feels satisfying, that feels good. That doesn't mean that I'm, we're, I'm being selfish because selfish really doesn't mean that I'm looking, um, I mean, the way we use the word in the English language, it doesn't mean um, trying to fulfill one's true self in a way that it leads to wholesome well-being. It means actually um, looking at, like trying to get an advantage for oneself at the expense of others around you in a way that is pejorative. I mean, we never say to somebody, oh, you're being selfish um, in a positive way, right? It's a, it's a judgment right. because they're doing something, something wrong. That's the kind of activity that are actually a neoliberal dominant culture um, actually pushes us towards, actually rewards and actually tells us, and that's what we should be doing. And that's the kind of action that indigenous uh, traditions across the world, Buddhist traditions, um, as me and many others around the world show is actually um, unhealthy, actually works against our well-being as well as that of society. Well, let's talk about some of those unhealthy things because you have some very funny things in your book about them. Um, you talk about um, psychopaths, for example. Um, and obviously a psychopath is someone who is really in it just for themselves and they just think that everybody else is foolish enough to, to, to want to be generous or anything like that. Uh, you have an interesting statistic in your book. You said that although one percent of the po only one percent of the population are psychopaths, somewhere between four and twenty percent are corporate executives um, that, are, that are psychopaths. Um, and I, I thought, you know, that's actually one of the to me that's one of the geniuses of capitalism because it it, it takes this male destructive behavior. And it moved it from competing like earls and dukes duking it out on the battlefield all the time, which was totally destructive, and made them compete in, produce, in, in, in corporate settings where they are actually somewhat productive for everybody. Now, the fact is there's so much male productive energy that we're overproducing. Um, so, so the, but the psychopaths and, and just in society in general, we need to find a, a harmonious place for every single kind of personality. So it seems to me that from that point of view, capitalism works in, in finding a harmonious place as well as one could get for a psychopath. Well, there's a, a couple of interesting ideas there. First of all, I would I'd question, in fact, whether those elves and dukes from medieval times, whatever, duking it out, um, were actually causing less harm than those psychopathic um, CEOs and corporate executives. Uh -huh. Because um, it might seem like in terms of what we see um, if we're looking at them like they're doing less harm, they're just um, wearing a nice suit and they're walking into an office, but the decisions they're making um, and the things they're investing in are actually what are destroying 
uh, like the, our living Earth right now, actually um, destroying the life in the oceans, uh, causing climate breakdown and destroying our ecosystems, as well as having uh, causing really the probably the greatest inequality and um, that the world has ever seen. And um, where right now, just a couple of dozen of these um, multi-billionaires own as much wealth as half of the entire world's population. Hard to get your head around, but these extremes actually lead to massive suffering, death and destruction for um, millions of people around the world, incredible pollution, destruction of other non-human species. And all that is as a result of these um, seemingly you know, clean, hygienic looking people with a smile on their face who look like they're not harming anybody. So I think we have to look, you know, more system, system wide at the harm that's being done rather than uh, just explicitly like what somebody looks like they're doing or saying in an office. So anyway, that's just something to, re, um, to be aware of. I, I set you up for that because I knew that would be your answer. Right? <laughs> that was a, that was a, uh, you know, that, that they, they do do more harm than Dukes and Earls. Um, the, the, uh, about the split on inequality, uh, I, you know, there, there are few times that we're more split than this, but I think maybe the, the times when there were four or five major empires all at the same time that the people, in, the emperors in charge of that were, they had a, a very unequal share of power and wealth compared to the rest of the population. So this is a Absolutely. habit that we've had for lots of times. Um, and and uh, yeah, we can, we can argue about exactly what's the worst, but we're certainly not in a good place. Yeah, and I, I so. think um, when we look at it really though, from a moral point of view, um, what, we, what we see now is a situation where we can do differently. And, um, you know, but basically, as you mentioned earlier, ever since the rise of agriculture and the rise of empires, um, there's been this huge increase in inequalities. But at this point, we as humans do have the technological capability for everybody to basically have enough food to eat, for everybody to um, not have insecurity around housing, for life to work well. But it, rather than and us actually shifting our resources for that to happen. What's happened in the last few decades is that the wealthy uh, global north, the, basically the um, 20% of the world's population that's caused 80% of the ecological destruction, 80% of the climate breakdown of the emissions out there, are actually increasing their wealth at the expense of those who are basically barely able to make a living. And this is um, really morally egregious. And it's something we don't really think about too much because our media doesn't want us to think about it. Um, but it's something that uh, the when we recognize, as I sort of unfold in this book, our true interconnection uh, with all other humans around us and with all of life around us, it leads to different ways of looking at these things. We stop saying like, well, too bad. You know, it's a bad thing, but it's not my problem. And we begin to realize that actually... All of the, by, by deciding not to do anything about it, we are actually doing something about it, which is to um, be part of that increase in those imbalances. So by becoming aware of these things, we have, we sort of, we can't avoid taking some sort of moral or ethical position around it. And that's hard for some people to look at. Before, we're going to get to that in just a second about, about uh, what you also mentioned was that there are many, many more Americans now identifying as spiritual but not religious. And so I want to talk about the, yeah. the, this approach you're taking, which is spiritual but not religious. 
uh, in trying to understand humanity. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about materialism for just a second, because uh, this materialistic um, society that we're in, where, where science has succeeded so well, um, that we're, we're eliminating so much of the lack of goods that we now have too many goods and so on, uh, it seems like it has a, a long way to roll out still. It still has another 100 years, unfortunately, or something like that uh, before we're done, because I agree, it, that materialistic thing is going to bring clean water to everybody. It's going to do the, it, it, I, I, I have no doubt about that, um, that that will, will be the outcome. But I think the reason why it's so successful is because the first fear that needs to be taken care of is, is this survival fear. And once the survival fear is taken care of, I think then what you're talking about is going to be a lot easier. And I don't mean to sound like a Marxist that first you have to go through a stage of capitalism before you become, you know, communistic or anything like that. But I do think that the survival fear, um, if it's not taken care of, is very hard to manage within something larger and cooperative. So, so now let's go to the, this idea that you have, because you talked about the self before. Um, you have an idea that the self is made up of both the animate consciousness and conceptual consciousness. And you take Plato down quite a few notches as a result of that. But you just go right ahead and, 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 and talk about those two ideas and, and how you think that that has developed and, and uh, what it means for our lives. Sure. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I, I, I do in the book, throughout the book, is look at things that we take for granted and show how actually they're based on false assumptions. And one of the fundamental things that in our modern worldview we take for granted really comes from uh, all the way from Descartes back in the 17th century, who made that foundational statement of Western philosophy, right? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And, and he was basically, even though he claimed to be rejecting Christianity, he was kind of actually uh, perpetuating it by taking this kind of division Christianity had between the soul and the body, and really it's kind of redefining the soul as the mind. And then saying, you know, I think with my mind, and therefore that's my sole locus of identity. And for hundreds of years since Descartes, we've taken that as a given. So we often think of ourselves as, you know, I have a body. And the body is viewed as more like this kind of machine or this housing in which I am. And I is somehow sort of some little spot of my sort of prefrontal cortex or whatever, that sort of self-awareness <laughs> that, that we have. And that's who I really am. And that leads... And people like Raymond Kurzweil, like a Google executive, and to talk about how, well, in the, in, when the singularity comes, the technological singularity, I'll be able to upload myself to the cloud and I can just then download myself in, in a new body, maintaining that same dualistic split. Um, Isn't that one of the most interesting uh, you know, results uh, uh, from, a, from an intellectual point of view of the Silicon Valley rise is that there's this hope that somehow I can load my life onto a computer where everything will be done correctly. It's the same hope that people have had for a long time. It's just done with a different image. Uh, but it, exactly. it, it's interesting to me because if you went and asked the men and women who want to do that, would you like to be united with every other mind in the country and then share all their thoughts? They would always say no. <laughs> I'm, sure that, I'm sure this would be the case. But it's so similar to that Christian yeah. ideal for a millennia, like, you know, for the soul to be uploaded basically to heaven um, once right. the body goes. And in this case, this, uh, that, that distinction is there. The soul is the mind and the mind is now the wetware or whatever you might consider it to be in the, um, in the brain. But what actually modern, what, like, but I guess the thing is the implication of that 
is that if my body doesn't really have an existence other than this housing for my mind, animals also um, from Descartes onwards have been viewed as really nothing but kind of resources or machines. They don't have any sort of intrinsic value to themselves. Um, and in fact, uh, for, for centuries now, biologists have been told to really um, study animals as if they don't really have feelings or emotions or anything like that, but just treat them uh, sort of purely as some sort of mechanistic type set of behavioral algorithms. But this is what ethologists and biologists have now discovered in recent decades is that is just a false foundation. Animals actually do have subjectivity in just the way that we do. And uh, in fact, um, other mammals have feelings. They experience suffering from pain, just like we do. They experience emotional suffering. And when I say just like we do, we have to be careful about the risk of anthropomorphism, right? I mean, when you look right. at a different animal and you see it doing something, we can't assume that their feelings are exactly like human feelings. Humans have our own unique way of experiencing life. Yeah, and and our, range, say, our range is very wide too, obviously. We, we, yes, exactly. what, 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 what makes somebody happy in one way, you know, uh, it, to me, one of the good analogies is a joke. You, you, you tell a joke, and if you're across the room from the people that are talking about the joke, you can kind of tell what kind of a joke it is by the quality of the laughter that comes out of it. Is it a raunchy right. joke? Is yes. it a, is it a, a generous joke? Yeah. Is it this a pun? Is it this? You can tell all that from the emotions that are in the laughter that comes out of the joke. And of course, everybody has a wide range of this. That's human. And and of course, you're, you're, all you're saying about animals is that they also have a wide range, and we might not recognize part of that range, but it's. You know, the, the Internet yes. is filled with videos that show how much emotions animals have. So. And, and, and what's key to understand is that even though they might be experiencing things in a different way, that doesn't make them any less valid than what we're experiencing. So like if you, you or I am, are males, right? And, and so okay. if, if, we, if uh, one of our partners um, has a baby... And, you know, she feels all the, these um, strong emotional feelings, um, say, um, after the birth or whatever. We can recognize that as valid, even though I'll never know what that feels like, right? But I can recognize that's a completely valid feeling. Similarly, if I look at um, a wolf or a whale or a, a dolphin or an elephant, I can recognize that they have elephant love. That doesn't mean that that love is, different, uh, is um, any less valid or in fact, potentially even they have depths of emotions that we can't even get close to understanding ourselves. And once we begin to recognize that, it does lead to very different ethical determinations, which really kind of comes back to your initial question about Star Trek and the Star Trek Federation. Because when we realize that this is the case, and then we also hold this fact in our, in our consciousness that right now there are tens of billions of animals being uh, essentially caged in uh, factory farms around the world, as essentially like tortured and, and then and killed very early in their lives after like uh, untold suffering that they're going through and day in, day out without any relief. And we're doing that just for the convenience of us having sort of um, you know, a, a, a cheap bite of chicken from the local grocery store. We have to realize that we are doing something very, um, very much against the benefit of all life. 
and in fact, as humans and in our current civilization right now, because I don't want to talk about and that being human nature, but I think our current civilization is allowing this incredible uh, devastation and destruction to take place, not just uh, that, um, that whole issue of factory farming I'm talking about, but then the destruction of um, ecologies around the world from our growth-based uh, global um, system. Uh, there's actually a concept of ecocide that is now being discussed um, to potentially be defined as a crime that could be prosecuted in the International Court in The Hague. And so the idea of ecocide being um, the actual conscious uh, taking part in the destruction of a whole ecology, which is being done as we speak by fossil fuel companies and mining companies and other companies around the world. And just just for those who are too pessimistic about this, the, the whole range of the reaction to to our environment is there in humanity, just like there's a spectrum of emotions. And and uh, although part of humanity is is engaged in this destruction, another part is engaged in in trying to clean it up, and another part is engaged in trying to come up with ways of sustainable agriculture and so on. And and and. Uh, there are a lot of people who will spend more money for food from places that that you know are not as destructive, etc. Um, and and That's I think, right. uh, ironically, the richer we get and the more productive we get uh, with our machines, the more capable we will be of making sure that everybody can have the more expensive, more uh, you know ag uh, labor-intensive versions of the food available to them, and not the cheaper, uh, awful versions of it. Um, and I always find that ironic because, uh, you know, it, it's a it, the possibility of solving this problem is probably with more people and more wealth rather than fewer people and, and, and less yeah. wealth. Well, I'm not I'm not sure I'm with you 100 percent on that, because mm -hmm. I think um, what I feel is needed to be really shift where we're going is to really look at the shifting the underlying system in which this all this is happening rather than um, sort of get more wealth or more technology. There's a lot of uh, sort of theories out there that, yeah, what we need is like green growth with investment in the right technology. We can sort of invest and um, invent our way out of these problems. But actually, when any of these things are uh, developed within the system, uh, that we have of our sort of global capitalist system dominated by these transnational for-profit corporations, any benefit tends to get used just to make more profit at the expense of actually utilizing even more resources rather than reducing. So, and you can see this all around you. And it, it actually has a, uh, a, a name in economics. There's actually a 19th century economic, economist called Givons who discovered this, he called, it was called Jivan's Paradox. And he discovered it first mm. uh, when people were finding more efficient ways to mine, um, mine coal with uh, steam engines. And rather than that enabled them to actually then uh, use less energy to mine the coal, well, of course, they used more energy to mine even more coal and continue right. that. And we see that everywhere around like today, like think of say, um, something like Bitcoin, for example. People might go like, well, the development in... Um, uh, more and more efficient uh, ways to use technology can lead us to use energy less uh, because we can actually accomplish more uh, using less. So somebody then comes up with this idea of Bitcoin. Um, and the, right now, the just the manufacturing of these Bitcoins is like utilizing 
and massive amounts of energy, equivalent, I think, to the whole uh, nation of Ireland or something like that, just to um, produce Bitcoins for um, ultimately people who already have the money to invest to make even more money. And that we see oh, everywhere wow. around the world. What, what I would compare it to more is the, the cost of running Las Vegas, because it's fairly similar to the Bitcoin operation in Las Vegas um, in terms of you know, the kind of investment it is. It's, it's, it's uh, delusional. Um, but, but in any case... Um, if you if you take this idea, you know, do you have an idea about how much this planet thinks it can hold of us? I mean, I met a woman yeah, here well, when I first moved here 20 years ago to San Francisco. I met a woman at a party who told me that the planet can only hold a billion people. And, and uh, after that, it, it's, it's just a yeah. problem. Um, and so I asked her how she was going to get us from 7 billion to 1 billion because uh, a couple of people tried that in the 20th century. They're not very popular. Um, you know, Stalin, Hitler, those, all those guys. I hear you. Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that because of these incredible inequalities in consumption, um, that actually it's not so much a matter of how many people can we afford to have on this earth, but um, how many people um, living what kind of lives can we afford to have on this earth? Because if you look at people who are living currently in the global south, well, the world can actually accommodate um, more of them than there are right now. If you look at the billion or so people in the global north, and the, we're the ones who do that 80% of, of, of consumption. And actually, it, w without even having to reduce human populations, if we in the global north recognize that and found ways not to make our lives less happy, actually, we could increase the quality of our lives by moving uh, further away from this kind of consumer orientation. It could lead, in fact, to a far more sustainable um, world, even with these numbers of people. But um, there have been studies, actually, some uh, so well-thought-out scientific studies that usually come up with a sense of for the long-term sustainability for a truly healthy living Earth. Um, with people living in a more normal way, uh, uh, you know, uh, perfectly happily, two to four billion might be the kind of number that might be like long-term sustainable. And that number actually is not, I mean, if we get away from these notions that some people have, oh, we're going to collapse and billions of people are going to die in megadeth, horrendous nightmare scenarios. There is a scenario where if we can shift the underlying values of our global civilization, um, over not that long a period, maybe a century or so, we could see human numbers decline simply through good living to a number getting closer and closer to that two to four billion range. It's not some sort of um, impossible um, sort of nightmarish scenario, but something that could actually be quite achievable yeah. if we shifted the underlying foundation of our civilization. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because, uh, you know, some of the people are, are for, for strict controls on children and all that kind of thing. And, you mm -hmm. know, China's tried that, yeah. uh, it, you know, unless you have a, a century or two centuries out and say, this is our goal and everybody can, you know, slowly get there. We that's that's entirely well, acceptable. You know, here's one really interesting statistic on that topic, by the way, because it turns out that um, the most effective way to reduce um, a number of uh, population levels in any society is actually, and if you don't know this, not this statistic, you won't guess it, but it's actually educating women. 
and in particular educating girls, young girls, because if you when you shift uh, energy of society towards educating girls, they begin to get more empowered and they begin to actually be able to make decisions that move away from having to have, you know, basically getting used as kind of chattel uh, to uh, then have lots and lots of children as some sort of notion of kind of insurance for that family for um, if times get hard or whatever. Um, so that's actually a very uh, positive way of looking at things because it's not a matter of trying to enforce some draconian rule on people, right. but simply investing in the education of those who need it the most. And, and uh, yeah, I've seen those statistics, you know, it is one country after another, the education uh, level goes up and the number of children goes down, uh, yeah. which is, of course, one reason why different cultures uh, don't want to educate women, um, because they mm -hmm. want it to see the way it is. And so that That's is also is. a process that will take time. But uh, ironically, uh, it seems to me that the civilizations and cultures who do not use their uh, women's intelligence are missing one half of their resources. And therefore, right. they will not be competitive in this terrible materialistic uh, marketplace that we're in uh, during the time. And I think people will find out from that. Um, and I, I think it's already put pressure on several Asian uh, civilizations to let the women, you know, uh, be as effective leaders as men um, mm -hmm. and, and, and educate them. And it's very clear. Anybody, anybody who says that women shouldn't be educated anymore, you know, it must have missed the 20th century and, and said, you know, the women are, are doing better than the men in, in education in most of the places. Um, they, they, it's going to be the equivalent of the flat earth society of the f future. You know, you might, you might have a small group of people who believe that the earth is still flat um, or believe that women can't be educated, but it's, uh, it's uh, you know, there's hundreds of millions of counter examples. It'll be very hard to sustain. Well, I think what, what happens in these situations is oftentimes people who don't have very much um, and they're feeling insecure, but they have a little bit, they get terrified that they will lose out um, if another group that is currently being oppressed gains more power. Um, and mm -hmm. that's, we see that in the polarization in the United States right now. But whether you're looking at um, this kind of gender discrimination, like the patriarchy or um, things like white supremacy, um, it, what it actually turns out is that it's not a zero-sum game. We're told it's a zero-sum game, and that leads to these divisions. But when we actually elevate people who have been marginalized or oppressed and give them a chance to be fully educated and have an equal say in, in culture and our economy, then it actually expands the very richness of our society. And it doesn't lead to this kind of um, trade-off between, well, somebody else, somebody else gets that job at my expense, because we can actually look deeper and look at ways to restructure society to make it more fair and to make it work for everyone's benefit rather than just for one group oppressing another group. Yeah. Happiness is an emotion that we each individually experience. There, there is no uh, limit to it. Um, and, and our own happiness doesn't take away from anyone else's unless they're jealous. You know? and, and, and I think as society develops more and more, jealousy will, will deteriorate, I hope. But in any case, um, absolutely. And we've had several other speakers over, over the, the last decade or so from uh, professors from universities near here with their research in this area that, you know, the worst thing you can do is to make a group powerless or to make a person powerless mm -hmm. or to that's, right. that's that's about the worst thing that you can do um, because we all have a will. And and uh, if you if it's just totally frustrated, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, personal 
traits that are assigned to different groups. You know, this group acts this way. I'm not going to repeat any of them, but this group acts this way or the, this sex acts this way. Uh, and it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with their poverty or it has to do with their powerlessness. Right. It has to do with all kinds of other things. And almost everybody who's powerless becomes deceptive and devious because it's the only way that they can get anywhere. So that's right. I think we can just, this is something that is known and will become better known. But the, the whole idea, I, I think personally that it's because democracy is only a couple hundred years old. I mean, in, in effect, it, it's older than that uh, at tried, but we've really only been trying it for a couple hundred years and it's spreading, but it, it's in each different form. Uh, it, it gets worse and better. People don't really believe in democracy, but they, they, they go along with it. If they believed in it, they'd be happy um, at an election when the other guy went, won. Um, but that was the majority vote, but their guy didn't win, they'd still be happy that the majority got their way. Uh, almost nobody feels like that. So that's a, an emotional yeah. indicator that we don't, we don't really believe in democracy. But I, be, before yeah. we go any further, um, we have a Zoom audience here um, that's, that's uh, in the room with us as much as being in the room can be. And uh, we'd like to go to them. I mean, we, you know, we've covered a lot, and that was a really great you know, way to end it about, about the future of humanity and, and that this is not a zero-sum game. Um, but mm -hmm. anybody that has questions from our Zoom audience that would like to ask them, uh, let's let's go with that. Elizabeth, you're you're first up. I remind myself of the little kid who's on the uh, in the car on the family trip, and I want to ask, "Are we there yet?" Like <laughs> I know you're writing about the great transition. Uh, what can we do? What are some signs that? We might be in this transition. Help us know how to see ourselves. Yeah, I know. This is the thing. When Once we begin to realize that um, both how bad things actually are right now for so many people and for so many other non-human uh, uh, beings around the world, we want to... We want to, things to really be transforming. And a part of what I share in the book is that this vision that it actually is possible. And it's not just possible in some sort of idealistic way in which um, maybe in earlier centuries people would talk about communism or something like this, but it's possible in terms of actual things that are being done by people around the world, different ways of organizing, different ways of, of um, relating to the living earth or different ways of farming that could actually be um, transmitted in uh, become part of our future. So the question then is, well, what does it mean to get there? Well, we're clearly not there right now. And in fact, if anything, the layers of destruction that are taking place are only increasing. Um, and that there is this real, uh, a, a realistic fear that before the end of the, before the centuries is out, we may end up looking at the collapse of our civilization with devastating results. So, uh, that is, in a way, we can almost look at it as, as if the things that we've taken for granted in our society are unraveling. But this is where, actually, in my view, the hope comes. That if you, if you imagine like a rug, a really tightly woven rug, and you want to change the way in which that rug is woven, there's not much you can do. You can try tearing it, but you're not going to do anything. But as the strands of that rug begin to unravel, it's kind of possible to then take those loose strands and reorganize them in ways that actually could be more beneficial without necessarily destroying what's there right now. So even in, I think, coming years, we're going to see major crises getting worse and worse. And I don't want that to happen. But as it happens, the hopeful element about it is that new generations will realize they can't just take 
what their parents' generation have told them for granted are the underlying truths about the world. And they'll look around for different ways to organizing. So I think this transition, when it happens, can happen at a speed that will shock everybody. I'm not saying it will happen. Um, and I don't want uh, to give some sense that, oh, it, uh, this guy is the optimist who's saying, oh, we're just inevitably headed towards some positive future. And um, no, I don't think that's, there's anything inevitable about it, but I think the possibility exists. And one way in which we can actually be there right now is actually uh, this notion of uh, like living into that future ourselves. If we consider the kind of world we'd like to live in, the kinds of way in which we'd like to see humans relate to each other, the way in which we'd like our society to actually work based on real sort of good qualities, we can choose to actually start living in that way ourselves. And we might find to our surprise that actually there's a large number of people who also want to live in that way, who relates to us in ways when we do that. So even if we can't actually make the future happen right now, we can actually live that future ourselves in the choices we make, in the ways in which we engage with others and with society. Well, we, we've gotten a question over uh, the uh, chat room as well. Um, and if anybody else in the Zoom uh, uh, audience would like to ask a question, uh, let the team know. So this is the, the uh, question from the uh, chat room. Have you seen signs of fruitful dialogue between Western and Eastern frameworks Matthew Fox's book on Julian of Norwich comes to mind as a larger framework from within the Western tradition. Yes, I think that there is increasingly very rich, valuable dialogue between these two different frameworks. I think we need to be careful not to fall into some of the traps that uh, were sort of classic in the 20th century. There's this concept um, of Orientalism that uh, the, philosophy, the philosopher Edward Said was the first to sort of define it in that way, which is this way in which um, it's very easy for Western people to romanticize the East and say, oh, the mm. spiritual East or the, the East that are um, not material. And um, that doesn't really lead to anything positive. It, can, it leads to these sort of creating more false dichotomies and then having unrealistic expectations about what we can gain from other cultures. So we need to avoid that. Um, and what I think is more valuable is when we can recognize that different cultural traditions bring different insights, different values, not that one is better than the other, um, but that um, what we need if we're to, going to move towards a more flourishing future right now is to take the best of what all of humanity has had to offer over millennia and actually pull it together in a way that's coherent so we can actually uh, really create a new value system uh, that is both new and ancient, that, that, that brings in what uh, is so great from the past, but also looks at how that applies into the future. So it's like I'm a big believer in more like integrating and not saying like um, uh, West is bad because look at the destruction you've done and East is good, but much more how can we take all of these um, elements together and create a truly... Um, integrated way of relating to each other and the living earth. You know, you're relying on your conceptual consciousness to do that. Um, and you, you talk about conceptual consciousness and animate <laughs> consciousness, but you're using the, your conceptual consciousness to, to pull those pieces together. Um, well, what, one thing that I actually do talk about it in the book is, and you know, to your point, and this is a key element of the book, and we were talking before about how Descartes gave us this idea that that's all 
we are at our conceptual consciousness, and we've realized that now actually all of life has this deep animate intelligence. But I talk about this notion of what I call an integrative consciousness, which is using what is unique about our human faculties, our prefrontal cortex mediated way of making sense of things, but rather than looking at separating from the rest of our living earth, looking at how we can use that to integrate within ourselves. So recognize that my feelings, my embodied sense of being um, is every bit as valid as those ideas I have. And how can I actually come up with a more coherent, cohesive way of experiencing all that and communicating that? And similarly, to recognize that as humans, we do have something that's very different and special um, that makes us unique among other animals, but we can use that to actually integrate more harmoniously with the rest of life on earth rather than use it to conquer and destroy life on earth, which is what our modern civilization tells us we should do with that. An analogy for what you're talking about uh, to me is uh, in, in science is quantum mechanics and relativity theory. Uh, they, they don't mesh um, and they know they don't mesh, but it's the, the solution is not that the quantum mechanic uh, believers and the relativity leaders fight it out and, and see who comes on top and wins. It's to say, well, what's what's wrong with each of these theories that makes them not mesh? We're going to end up with another theory that takes pieces of the ideas or the theories of the concepts that are used here and here and has a different perspective on them. So um, that's, that's yeah. obviously what we need. Uh, and I, I think... You know, I mean, this is not a speedy process, so I'm I'm actually kind of optimistic, uh, maybe even a little bit more than you about it, because um, I think we've made a lot of progress in a, in the last couple hundred years in doing just that. Um, but I don't know. You, you, the whole question yeah. is, do, are we've made enough progress compared to the group that's uh, moving in the other direction of, of yeah. consumption. I mean, the thing is, uh, we have very little time to make these big uh, transitions that are needed. Uh, I mean, yeah. um, we look at, there's scientists, there's papers that have been put out, signed by uh, over 10,000 scientists all around the world. This is not just some small group of people. And basically, there's a paper entitled, Warning, Scientists Warning to Humanity, saying we have to turn around our consumption-based culture if we are to um, look at any kind of possibility of a flourishing future in the long term for humanity. Um, the climate scientists say that we have just 10 years to turn around the direction we're moving in in terms of emitting greenhouse gases. But ultimately, we have to recognize, and this is something I do explore in the book, that even if we were somehow magically solved our climate crisis, um, the ecological crisis, the rate at which we're destroying so many, so much the richness of our ecosystems around the world, the rate at which we're beginning the sixth great extinction of species, uh, which is uh, only this one is human caused. And since life began on Earth, those have to change. And so somehow we have to, uh, we don't have the, I wish we did have the luxury to just sort of let uh, uh, sort of progress in some uh some mystical way, or whatever, just sort of unfold in some way that leads to a, a more beneficial outcome. But we have to recognize we are facing a true civilizational crisis right now. Um, and at the same time, I don't see myself as a voice of doom and gloom, because even though that is the case, I do believe that if we recognize the deep structural underpinnings that are leading us to this crisis, we do have the potential to turn it around. Does it give you any any uh, comfort to to think that if climate change continues, um, I mean, 
at one point, 700 million years ago, for example, the average temperature was 90 degrees Fahrenheit instead of under 60 now. So that's 30 degrees higher per person. But, you know, maybe maybe that group can wear hats that said make dinosaurs great again or make lizards great again, because <laughs> the dinosaurs could thrive under that that sort of uh, climate. Um, that doesn't bring much hope to you, right? Uh, no, I don't see a lot of hope in um, in anything like that. I mean, we're seeing just right now with this um, incredible um, suffering caused by the heat dome in the northwest uh, of um, of this continent just in the last week or two at just right. one and a half degrees Celsius uh, warming of the Earth since um, the um, you know since uh, modern times, and that led to something like the. Uh, it's estimated about a billion sea creatures lost their lives, basically cooked um, by the heat, just as a result of this one event. And unfortunately, tragically, we are just en route. Even if we magically shifted everything right now, so much of this right. is inbuilt. We're en route to far greater destruction uh, and in over, um, over the years and decades to come. But the thing is, we can t- turn it around. It's not enough to say, oh, it's too late, nothing we can do right now. It's never too late on the increment to actually shift things and actually turn things around in a positive direction. What it takes is looking with clear eyes at the gravity of the problem um, and then um, having the courage to look at the things that actually need to be shifted, deeper things that need to be shifted in our culture, shifting from a a consumer-oriented, growth-based a profit-oriented culture we have right now to one where we focus more on our uh, connect connections with people, focus more on the quality of lives rather than consuming more. Uh, it's a, we have one more question that just came in. But I wish I could stop on that one because that's a great line. And I, I do think that there are tens of millions of people on that page, but we need hundreds of millions and maybe a billion or so to, to make it happen. Right. So so mm-hmm. I, I think we really we, we really have a good chance of making it work. Uh, but another question came in off the internet, and I don't see any from the Zoom audience, so we'll fi- finish with this one. Uh, further to the East-West dialogue, have you found any valuable contributions to a perspective on interbeing from the Western mystical tradition, or is this an area for future explanation? Well, you certainly did. He talks about interbeing in in his book, so go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Um, thank you for raising that uh, that question. And this notion of interbeing is one that's described best by actually the um, very engaged Buddhist monk called Thich Nhat Hanh, um, who is really exemplary in the sense that he's deeply spiritual and he's deeply engaged because his recognition is that um, spirituality doesn't mean sort of transcending all that's going on in the world and sort of leaving it behind. True spirituality means recognizing that interbeing, the sense of our deep interconnectedness with all of life, with all the suffering that's taking place, with all 8 billion of us human beings, um, that we're all connected with each other. And, and so this is actually a theme that runs through the book in many ways. This is both a, a deeply Buddhist theme and equally important, a theme that arises from modern systems thinking and complexity sciences, recognizing that actually the connections between things and between people oftentimes more important than the things themselves in establishing our identity and uh, really leading to the most important things that we experience in our lives. So uh, thank you for raising that. And really, in a way, that is perhaps almost the fundamental theme of this new book, The Web of Meaning. Yes. Um, And I would just before we end, uh, for anybody who's listening and thinking about these problems, um, 
I think it's really important if you're, that means you're empathic with other people and, and, and feeling their suffering to make a difference between your emotions and the emotions you're feeling in other people. The problem for empaths is when they think that the other people's emotions are theirs. And you're much more mm -hmm. effective as an empathic person when you can keep that separate and therefore you have enough energy to, to do something about it rather than just become bogged down in a, all the suffering. That's right. And that's actually a very important distinction that people make between empathy and compassion. And, and mm -hmm. again, going back to and, uh, what they've actually done studies of Buddhist monks um, with neuroscientists looking at how their brain works, that they've been asked to um, really focus on empathic relations to suffering and compassionate. And the difference is, just to your point, when we empathize, it actually causes us to suffer with the suffering, which naturally leads us to either get burnout or to turn off or turn away from that suffering. Compassion is very much, a, it needs to be lit. We can sort of almost think of empathy a little bit like the ignition um, of, the, of the stove. You need the empathy to recognize the suffering of others. But then you don't need to be feeling it all the time. But then compassion is much more this intention to reduce the suffering of others. And you can go to that place. And that actually, again, moves towards our true, actually our human uh, innate tendency to want to help others, which ends up uh, being more sustainable. We can spend our lives in a place of compassion in a way that doesn't burn us out like empathy alone does. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great way to end because it's probably the most important point for you know all the people. Mm -hmm. Everybody works in their own way on the issues that you talk about, the ones that are interested. Um, and and uh, to be able to do that in a sustainable way uh, is fairly crucial to success. So thank you very much. Uh, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. We really appreciate that you're here and a special welcome to the Zoom audience that joined us right in the room electronically. That's Thanks again, great. Jeremy, yes, and you, uh, we'll see you back for the next book. <laughs> great conversation. Thank you so much, George. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.